this is a month of great historical significance. We talked about that a bit in Sunday school, just in the sheer volume of events that occurred in the month of October that brought about the advent of the Bible that sits on your lap. So many of the events that God used and orchestrated to bring about Scripture in the English language particularly occurred in the month of October. Uh, That's fitting as we remember also at the end of the month what was accomplished in Luther's nailing of the 95 Thesis to the castle church door uh, in Wittenberg, Germany. Uh, So many things are converging on us in this month as we reflect back and we look back, but really none is greater uh, than the recovery of God's Word in the language of people so that they can read and understand and hear for themselves what God had clearly said. And so uh, this morning, I stand here keenly aware of that um, after remembering just this past week on Tuesday uh, as we as I reflected back on the completion of the Coverdale Bible, October 4th, 1535, on Thursday, the martyrdom and the death of William Tyndall, the great Bible translator, October 6th, uh, 1536. Uh, it's, it's particularly weighty uh, to open God's Word after we dwell upon such uh, grace that has been shown to us to give us our Bibles this morning. And so I want to ask you to do something that we haven't done in a while that we probably should do more often. And that is, would you join me in standing as we read God's Word, as we show respect to what has been given to us? We'll begin in John chapter 3, verse 16 down through verse 21 this morning. Remember, this is Jesus speaking to Nicodemus as he wraps up their conversation for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life for God did not send the son into the world to judge the world but that the world might be saved through him he who believes in him is not judged he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Father, help us now as we look into your word. Not only, Father, that the blood and the works and the righteousness of Jesus would plead for us, but that the words of Jesus to Nicodemus here would speak to us. Holy Spirit, take the word you have inspired, that you have preserved, drill it into our minds, Crush our hearts of stone. Give us hearts of flesh to believe and to love You and the Father and the Son for the great redemption that You have given us in the Lord Jesus. This is a great day. It would be even greater, Holy Spirit, were there one in our midst this morning who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ as their their Savior. Would you draw them to Him? Convince them of their sin and convince them of the salvation that is offered in Him and give them faith to believe. And save them. Give them life this day. We ask for the name and the honor and the glory of the Father and the Son and the Spirit that you would do this so that we may rejoice together for all eternity in the precious work of the Lamb on our behalf who loved us and gave Himself for us, paying the price of our sin and our redemption. 
pray this all, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Have you ever had a conversation with someone and then looked back at some point after that and realized that that was the last conversation you'd ever had with that person? And perhaps in that last conversation, just how profound the words that were spoken between the two of you were. Thought about that recently. It's Chris Keir passed away and went home to be with the Lord. And Chris had just been by the church just a couple of weeks before. And we had a good conversation about the Lord, about spiritual things. And, you know, looking back, that those, are, those are times when you, you never know, do you? When it may be a last conversation. And those words that were perhaps spoken were indeed profound words, extraordinarily meaningful in light of the fact that that was the last time. We find something, I think, similar and comparable here in John chapter 3 as Jesus concludes His Nicodemus discussion. Now, as far as we know, Jesus never spoke to Nicodemus again. It's not saying He didn't. It's just saying that this is the last recorded conversation the last guarantee of a conversation we have between Jesus and Nicodemus. As we look back, and I know for a fact that as Nicodemus would have reflected back on this conversation, because we know that at the end of John's Gospel, Nicodemus is there when Jesus dies. And don't you know these words come flooding back in his mind? Profound words, strong words, true words that Jesus spoke to him. But as Jesus is concluding his conversation with Nicodemus, he emphasizes the most important points. Jesus recaps just so that Nicodemus understands where they have been in this dialogue. Jesus recaps what his life and his ministry are all about. He recaps for Nicodemus the importance of Nicodemus' own life, whether he will believe or reject Jesus as Messiah and as Savior. And so as Jesus is recapping this conversation, these final words to Nicodemus, it is not hyperbole, brothers and sisters, to say that these concluding thoughts are the singular dividing line for every human being who has ever lived and who ever will live. It does not matter whether or not one believes what Jesus says here, you will still be affected by what He says. These final words in this conversation with Nicodemus affect every human being, whether you want to admit it or not. And that is a message that we need as Christians to go boldly with into the world. Whether you believe what we say or not is irrelevant. What we say will affect you for all eternity. Not because we say it, but because thus saith the Lord. The Creator of heaven and earth. The Determiner of right and wrong. The Guardian of heaven. And so what Jesus does in His final words with Nicodemus this morning Jesus does what we are told in our day and age is absolutely inappropriate as religious people to do, and that is to cause division. After all, isn't the point in the world's thinking today, the point of religion is to do what? It's just to bring everyone together. To give 
validation to every possible view on the planet. You want proof of that? Watch how pagan America has become by observing what goes on in the National Cathedral. Anytime there's a tragedy or anytime there's a state funeral or any some official thing that has to do with religion, we've got them all. We've got priests, we've got rabbis, we've got imams, we've got shrinks, we've got the whole nine yards. They're all there. Don't divide anybody, we're told. And yet Jesus says, listen, if you want to know what my coming will do, here's what it does. It divides. Those who believe and those who do not believe. That's where he goes with Nicodemus in his final words. You might that's kind of an odd way to end a conversation. Not really. Because he's laying it out for Nicodemus. He's making it exceedingly clear that you fit into one of these two groups. And I'm saying that to you this morning. You and I both. We are either in one camp or the other. There is no third way. You are either in Christ or you are outside of Christ. You are either forgiven and accepted by the Father because of His Son, or you are judged because you have rejected the Son. One of the two. We can make no apology for that because Jesus makes no apology for that. We're not narrower than Jesus is and we're not broader than Jesus is. We're trying to land where Jesus lands and this is exactly where Jesus lands. Jesus reminds Nicodemus that though in these verses judgment is a possibility, it is not the reason that He's come. It's not the Father's purpose in sending the Son to judge the world. It's clear, isn't it, in verse 17? God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. The Son is sent into the world to save it from judgment that it has already heaped upon itself. Next time somebody says to you, don't judge me, you say, that's impossible. You are already judged. You have judged yourself. You have heaped condemnation upon yourself. Jesus didn't judge. He didn't have to. You did it for Him. And when Jesus does return as the judge, He will only echo and point out what is already true of you if you do not believe. You are condemned already, He says in verse 18. The Son, however, is sent into the world, Nicodemus. The, 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 world, the, center, the, the Lord Jesus Christ is sent into the world to reverse that judgment. That is the good news. By His own incarnation, He came to reverse the judgment that all mankind is born under because we are born in unbelief. And yet His coming divides. Nicodemus now must choose what and whom he will believe. You this morning must choose what and whom you will believe. This is the crisis moment. The crisis moment is not when you arrive before the judgment seat of God. It is not when you stand before the bar of heaven. The crisis moment is now. The fork in the road is in front of you. You must do, as Joshua said all those years ago, choose you this day whom you will serve, whom you will believe, whom you will follow, whom you will place your dependence and faith in. Is it yourself? Is it your religion? Is it something else? Or is it Christ and Christ alone? Jesus confronts in his final conversation Nicodemus with this reality. 
he really gives Nicodemus two contrasts. And that's the key word this morning, if you want to take notes. There are two contrasts between salvation and judgment that we must deal with as individuals before a holy God. You must reconcile and deal with head on these two contrasts. And may I say this morning that, that as awkward as this sounds, it doesn't play out well in logic, I suppose, but it is a pleading imperative. Jesus is issuing a pleading imperative. He, has, he is telling Nicodemus, this is how it has to be, but I'm pleading with you, see it. Believe it. What should I see? What should I believe, Jesus? That I am the Christ. Do not neglect me. Do not walk past me. Do not think little of me. Do not neglect to believe in me. And so in these contrasts, we hear the voice of Jesus with that pleading imperative. Do not neglect the Christ. First of all, the first contrast we see this morning is the contrast of God's purpose in Christ. God's purpose in Christ. As Jesus closes His time with Nicodemus, He's dealing with the greatest contrast that anyone and yet everyone faces. On the one hand, there is an inherited judgment. There is a rebellion in progress against God that has invited His wrath and His judgment upon us. We hear a lot about that word rebellion today. Insurrection. Let me tell you, the world has no concept of what insurrection and rebellion looks like until you understand what sin is against a holy God. That friends, is insurrection. That is rebellion of the highest order. That is cosmic treason against the God who not only made you, but sent His Son to redeem you from your sin while you spit in His face. Romans 5.8 God demonstrates His love toward us while we were sinners. Christ died. Not when you were good little Sunday school boys and girls, cleaned up, polished up, happy to sing little songs about Jesus and listen patiently to a flannel graph. While you spit on Him, while you hammered the nails, while you cursed Him to His face, Christ died for you. And every moment you live not believing that, you are living in insurrection and rebellion to the greatest act In all of human history. Nicodemus, you cannot miss this. Your judgment is upon you. And yet on the other hand. On the other hand. Stands God. While we clamor for rebellion... While we clamor in insurrection, while we clamor in unbelief, stands God who is rich in mercy. Sending His own Son, His only Son, His one-of-a-kind Son. While the mob roars, God sends. To reverse the judgment they, by their unbelief, by their rejection, have heaped upon themselves. Now how is God going to do this? By offering salvation in Christ? By offering salvation by Christ? By offering salvation through Christ? And ultimately, salvation for Christ? For His glory. Jesus stands and 
Not only did Nicodemus, he stands today as the authoritative one sent by God to bring salvation to sinners. You want proof God is rich in mercy? Isaiah 53 again, it pleased the Father to crush the Son. The Father did not send natural, phenomenal response to the crucifixion of His Son where the earth just opened up and swallowed all of humanity. He could have done that, you know. In fact, He had done that. It's not outside of His wheelhouse to do something like that. He could have done that. But God, being rich in mercy, was pleased to offer up His Son that while the crowd roared against Him, God was immovable in His determination to save sinners. It's the opposite of what we deserve. God made us, and yet we so very quickly, so very quickly, went astray. And ever since our first father Adam sinned, according to Romans 5 verse 12, we have remained sinners by nature. Sinners under judgment. Therefore, through one man, sin entered into the world. Death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Men are prone to forget that separation from God was your choice. We chose separation. The very opposite is true in the way that people respond now to this truth that we are under judgment. How dare God? Really? How dare you? You left Him. He never left you. You chose to eat the fruit. You chose to sin. That is your nature. That is what you chose to do. God did not separate you from Himself. You separated you from Him. But that's not the world the way the world thinks. It's not the way pride allows us to think, is it? Pride says, how dare God, as if you're the center of the universe, as if you're the paragon of virtue. How dare God judge me? How dare God leave me? No, no, no. How dare you? Let's ask the right question. When people die, we act as though somehow God is to be blamed. We, 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 we use language like this. Well, let us help you wrestle with God. Why God would do this? That's just psychobabble for blaming God for something you did. God didn't choose rebellion. You chose rebellion. God warns you that if you do this, you will die. You chose to do that. You are getting the fruit of your just your just fruits of your action. God created you for life, but you chose death. That is the, the story of humanity. And we need to be careful that in our presentation of the gospel, that's where we start. Jesus is laying it out for Nicodemus. Nicodemus, I came to save because you've already judged yourself. You're already under judgment. But God, it's great words in Scripture, right? But God, just when you find those, just slow down because something big's about to happen. But God, being rich in mercy, being rich in loving kindness, that He demonstrated for us, sends His Son, verse 17, not to judge the world, but to save the world. That is amazing. So 
so that the one who believes in Jesus, the Christ, the promised one from the Father, who is sent to bring that salvation, might be relieved from the judgment he himself has incurred by himself. So that on that day, there will be no judgment against you. Paul says it this way in Romans 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Notice the contrast in John 3, 18. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed. But in Christ, when we believe, there is no condemnation. Jesus words this truth in a present reality and it's critical because it is something we have now and will have forever. It is also true that judgment is not awaiting you in the future. You are already under judgment. The debt, the weight, the guilt, the torment, with all of its appropriate retributions and effect on us, it is here. It is now. We're such a dense people. I said we, not you. Including me. We are such dense people that we, we, we love to play this game. Just kick the can down the road. Ah, deal with it later. Ah, we'll deal with it later. We do it with financial matters. Men, we particularly do it with chores around the house. But we do it with judgment. Ah, it's not that serious. We'll deal with it later. Judgment is what's going to happen in the future. Jesus says you are judged right now. It's a present reality. You are judged right now. Brothers and sisters, we see it all around us. People are fracturing in ways we've not seen. People are losing their collective mind. And I, I'm not saying that hyperbolically. I'm not saying that in jest. I mean that literally. The world is literally going insane. They're going mad. And it's not this environment's fault. And it's not that. And it's You know what it is? It is judgment that is already present. It is the weight of sin. It is Romans 1. You will go mad in unbelief. The problem is not social. The problem is not political. The problem is not financial. The problem is spiritual. Jesus says you are under judgment now. You are reaping. Oh, it's going to get worse, but it's already here. The guilt, the weight, the brokenness. And he says to Nicodemus, but I've come to take that away. You see, this is the freedom that mankind longs for and yet cannot create. We want the burden of sin removed. We want the guilt and we want the conscience soothed, don't we? Look at all the ways our society, humanity, tries to self-soothe. They want the weight taken off. They want the guilt taken away. They want the condemnation. They know it's there and they do all sorts of things to get rid of it. And none of it works. 
It's not even a good band-aid. In fact, the more you try, the more problems it causes. The more guilt and condemnation it incurs. Why? Because as Jesus says, it is wrapped up in unbelief. Only I, only I can deliver from that guilt. But let me tell you something, Nicodemus. He whom the Son declares to be free is free indeed. When I pronounce salvation, when I pronounce victory, when I pronounce forgiveness, it is final. It is as full as it can possibly be. It is salvation from judgment. That is why I have come. Now I want you to take notice. This is not any mere offer. It is an offer from the lips of God Himself. I just wish God would speak to me. He did. And He still does. God Himself is proclaiming this. How many of you have ever heard the argument, yeah, the Bible's just written by men. I only read the red letters. Well, that's a really bad thing to say because all Scripture is breathed out by God, right? 2 Timothy 3.16, all of it. But if you're going to make that argument, I present to you the red letters. God Himself is saying this. You are under judgment. You see, that's the, that's the fallacy of belief. Oh, Jesus would never t- talk so judgmentally, really? He just did. But He also, in the same breath, says, I am here to redeem you from that judgment that you have heaped upon yourself. God has acted and God has sent. I am here as proof of that. God saves. The verb is passive. He came to save. We don't participate in that salvation. God brings it. Aren't you glad for that? Any salvation you would participate in would be tinged with the sin you brought to it. And would therefore no longer be salvation. So if God is the one bringing this salvation, what are the implications of that? Well, that salvation would be as eternal as God is. It would be as powerful as God is. That is to say, all-powerful. It would be as immutable as God is. That is to say, never-changing. Without the possibility of change. It would be as gracious as God is. All of grace. Not of works which you have done. It would be as just as God is. It would fulfill all of God's righteous and strict and stringent requirements so that there is nothing, no criteria left to meet. God has done it all. It's as just as He is. There's only one question that we can ask of this. Where do you stand in relation to the salvation Christ brought? Where do you stand? There's a great divide. Where are you at? Are you on the side of belief in Christ, forgiven, freed? Are you on the other side in unbelief, still carrying the judgment of God upon you and upon your sin? As much as sinful men may reject the notion of God, and particularly a God of wrath, a God who would enact and eventually carry out judgment, it doesn't change the reality that they're still accountable to Him. I didn't always like the teachers who told me to sit still and be quiet in class. I know you can't imagine that I would ever talk in class. I never liked the teachers that said, Brian, you have to sit still and be quiet and learn. I didn't like that. But I was still accountable to it. My mom got lots of notes telling her that I 
didn't necessarily see that accountability. But nevertheless, it was. So we had a, a deal at home. You get a note at school. You get a spanking at home. It's real simple. And after about first grade, that cured that problem. We may not like it, but we're still accountable to Him. It's not God who somehow is at fault or lacks something. It's us. I'm the problem. The the fact is that God did not send Jesus. Jesus says, listen, Nicodemus, I didn't come to bring judgment. There's plenty of judgment here to go around already. You brought it on yourself. I came to bring salvation from what you've done. Now, listen, it's not that judgment isn't a reality. There will be. You will have to face your accountability to this reality. But that time's not yet. Not in its fullness. But it is still here. And so secondly, we see the contrast of man's rejection. First, we see the contrast of God's purpose in Christ that He came to save. And now we see the contrast that man, in his natural state, has rejected Christ. God has offered and sent His unique and only Son to stand in your place. And in your place right now, you stand there in unbelief. That's how we are born. And because of your unbelief, you're in judgment. Jesus frames the terminology here in a finished and completed state you are judged already it's complete we're not waiting on you know some piece of evidence it's done your lack of belief in me condemns you fully right now and to make the point he uses another perfect tense a completed sense to say listen Let me emphasize this again. He he says it again. Because you have not believed it. You've not done it. You're condemned already. You've rejected. Why? What, What is it that Nicodemus has rejected? What is it that all sinners are born rejecting? You have rejected the name. The totality of who Jesus is. You see, you can be religious like Nicodemus and reject the name. You you could even call yourself Christian and reject the name. Somebody stopped me after Sunday school and said, no, this survey that I referenced, this latest survey from Lifeway and Ligonier Ministries that found 65% of professing evangelicals deny that Jesus is God? They asked me the question, what do we do with that? Is that just because they're not reading their Bible? Is it because they're being taught wrongly in churches? And the answer is yes to both. But they call themselves Christians. It doesn't matter what you call yourself. If you deny the name, the totality of Christ's person, all that He is, all that He taught, all that He came to do, you are condemned. I don't care how religious you are. I don't care how Christian you are. I don't care how many times a week you're at church. It must be all of Christ that we embrace. Because all that is in Christ is the salvation, is the freedom we need to come out from under judgment. It is all of His perfection. It is all of His deity. All of His humanity. All of His righteousness. All of His acceptance by the Father. It is all of Him. Jesus says there's two kinds of people. Those who believe that and those who don't. And those are the only kind of people. There are no other types of people in the world. Nicodemus, where do you stand? On which side of this divide do you stand? Now, some of you are 
biblically astute and i thank god for that you're biblically literate and i praise god for that and in your mind you may be going to john chapter 9 and going but jesus says something that seems to contradict this in john chapter 9 in verses 35 through 41 we read this jesus heard that they had put him out and finding him he said do you believe in the son of man he answered who is he lord that i may believe jesus said to him you have both seen him and he is the one who is talking with you and he said lord i believe and he worshiped him and jesus said for judgment i came into the world well what do we do with that because in john 3 he says i didn't come for that how do we reconcile those two things well notice that in john 9 Jesus speaks of judgment in the same context as he does with belief, just like he's doing with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. There's a man who believes in John 9. And Jesus says, listen, I came, in verse 17 of John 3, not to judge the world, but to save the world. That's my mission. But listen, the reality is also true in John 9.39 that my coming reveals judgment already here. I came to make this division clear, if you will, so that those who do not see John 9.39 may see and that those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with Him heard these things and said to him, we are not blind too, are we? You talking to us, Jesus? Jesus' response is piercing in verse 41. If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, we see, your sin remains. You're self-deceived. You're self-deluded. And that, my dear Pharisee, is your judgment. You're self-deceived in your own unbelief. And that unbelief is willing. You willingly live this way. I didn't come to bring judgment. It's already here. Why? Because they do not believe. They're not looking for an escape from their sin. They are happy in their sin. And this is where it's so incredibly important what Jesus has built this sermon upon, built this conversation upon. Only the Holy Spirit can make someone see their sin, loathe their sin, and want out of their sin. That's why Jesus starts where he does in John 3, isn't it? talks about the spirit's work in regenerating the spirit's work in creating life the spirit must do this why because no sinner thinks he's a sinner no sinner hates his sin that's why you can't just go up to somebody and say you know jesus died for your sin why do you do that i kind of like it i'm happy here i mean as far as most of the world thinks, their life is going just fine. And you get people again who call themselves Christians telling me, oh yeah, that's right, you're living your best life now. No, you're not. You're under judgment. Even now. That's why the Spirit must work convincing men of sin, as we sang earlier. D.A. Carson writes, Jesus did not come into a neutral world in order to save some and condemn others. He came into a completely lost world that loves their sin, that hates the Messiah, that wants nothing to do with good news. You know why? Your good news implies that there's bad news. The Christian gospel is only good news because it first presents the bad news. 
And that's what Nicodemus doesn't want to hear. It's what the Pharisees don't want to hear. It is what your friends and neighbors don't want to hear. But Jesus pulls no punches. He says, you are judged already because you have not believed. I came into a world of blind rejection. Go back to John chapter 1. Remember, I kept telling you when we were back in John chapter 1 how important these first 18 verses are because they lay a foundation and a pattern for the rest of the gospel. We find it true again right here in verses 10 and 11. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. Why? He reminded them of judgment that was already theirs in their unbelief. Every sinner is born. Every sinner. We just had one baby born. We've got several more about to come. And we're all going to look at them and coo over them and oodle over them. And the reality is they are born under judgment. Every one of them. In need of Christ. Jesus didn't have to bring that. They came into the world with it. John Moore says salvation implies judgment. Otherwise, what would you need to be saved from? So when we go to a lost and dying world, we say, hey, we have good news. Jesus died for sin. Jesus died for sinners. They don't want to hear that. Even your good news is bad news. Because it assumes judgment. It implies judgment and the fact that they need to be saved from something they have no desire to be saved from until the Spirit convinces them. Jesus came because the problem of sin was already in existence. Nicodemus is having to learn and grapple with the reality that his religious fervor has not provided an answer to his sin. But wait a minute, Jesus. What about everything I've done? What about it? Doesn't change anything I've said here, Nicodemus. What, but, but Jesus, I have a whole sect of people. I mean, the whole nation really revolves around what my little group of men have determined to be true. And, 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 and the answers we've given people, Jesus, they don't matter, Nicodemus. How many of you have ever, you know, in, your, in your walk with the Lord and in your spiritual maturity, you've reached a point and there, you have a light bulb moment when the light comes on or you feel like, you read something in Scripture, you come to understand something you hadn't seen before, and you feel like your whole world gets flipped upside down. It's a little disconcerting. But it's, it's joyful at the same time. Because God loves you enough not to leave you in error. That's a good thing. Well, Nicodemus is there. He's a scuba diver who's just rolled off the edge of the boat and the bubbles are all going up and he feels like he's going down and he's not sure which way is up and Jesus says, yeah, you got nothing, Nicodemus. You're a drowning man apart from me. Romans 3, 9, Paul says, what then, are we better than they? We Gentiles better than the Jews or the Jews better than the Gentiles? Not at all. For we have already charged both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. <laughs> Pagans and religious, you're all sinners. Galatians 3.22 But the Scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. John Morris went on to say how people will fare in the judgment on that day will depend solely on their relationship to Jesus Christ. And that starts now. There is judgment to come. Jesus didn't bring that the first time. He will bring it the second time. 
And it won't be because Jesus has pronounced the judgment. It's clear in verse 18, we have pronounced the judgment. We have uttered the blasphemous lack of belief. And when Jesus came, it simply revealed how blasphemous and how unbelieving we were. The judgment of men is upon themselves because they don't believe. And, and, and they even judge themselves gleefully. They judge themselves zealously. They just keep heaping it on, don't they? They, they, they just keep it on. The more they reject the Messiah, the more religious garb they throw it under, the more faith talk they give it, the worse it becomes. And it just self-perpetuates. And then they just continue on sinning. Their attempts make no atonement for victory over sin. It's maddening, and it is madness. Some of you may have watched this past week the now very famous interview that Tucker Carlson did with, I guess his name's still Kanye West. I don't know what his name is. We watched the first half of the interview one night. We watched the second one the next night. And what, made, what makes me sad is that there are people, no doubt, all over who call themselves Christians who were so happy to hear Tucker and I have concerns for him. Say, so we're going to talk about Kanye's deep faith now. Who then goes on to make absurd statements like God is in all of us. And I get, uh, everything is prayer to me. You know, like Tupac and the Hail Man. It just, it's just blasphemous, Christ-rejecting nonsense. Oh, it sounds religious. Christians are naming it and claiming it. Oh, he's one of ours. What did he do with Jesus? What do you do with Jesus? Why do people reject the biblical Jesus? Whether it's on an interview in 2022 or in Nicodemus sitting in a darkened place with Jesus in the middle of the night having this conversation. Why do we reject it in forms of heaping all this other nonsense that is really just thinly veiled unbelief upon us? Because this, His very life and death, His reason for coming, tells you you are under judgment with innate condemnation written all over you you're the little kid who's been in the cookie jar with chocolate all over your face and the last thing you want to see coming is your mom because it's written all over you they have inherited unbelief from adam they continue to self-perpetuate that unbelief with spiritual vernacular. And Jesus says it damns you and makes you twice the son of hell. That's what he said to the Pharisees. You know why you're so dangerous? Not because you're irreligious, but because you are religious. You make people twice the son of hell. So now I've got to go and I've got to unconvince them of what you've convinced them of so that I can tell them the truth. So unless we're willing to agree with Jesus in verse 18 that we stand condemned already the Son of Man's mission will mean nothing to you. D.A. Carson likens it to a critic who walks into a Museum of Fine Art. Imagine the Louvre or 
a national gallery somewhere and they sit in front of a masterpiece and they begin to mock the masterpiece. And they're laughing and they're carrying on and they're telling everybody what a great art critic they are and how they have all this experience and all these degrees and they're a curator of this and a curator of that and they're a connoisseur of this and a connoisseur of that and they're mocking the masterpiece the whole time. Carson says the problem is not with the masterpiece. The problem is with the one mocking it. The problem isn't with Jesus and what He reveals. The problem is in us who have rejected it. We are that critic in our unbelief. We are mocking the One who came to redeem us. I pray that's not you. I pray it will never be you. By God's grace, I pray that every single one of us would bow our knee to confess our sin and our condemnation that we stand under today, born into this world to Christ, that we might be saved by Him out of that. We'll get into verse 19 next week as Jesus continues to Speak these final words to Nicodemus. But these are strong words. These are dividing words. But these are words we cannot walk away from. We must deal with this. With our sin. With our present state of condemnation already. Because we are Adam's descendants. We are sinners by nature and by choice. And only Jesus can fix that. Only Jesus will change that. Let's go to Him in prayer. Father and our Savior, we come before You and we give thanks that Jesus, You invaded a realm already under judgment. While we were sinners, You died for us. You came for us. Already in that state of condemnation. What love and what grace would compel You to do such a thing? We do not know. We certainly would not do it. But You have. Father, may that great love, that great grace be a heavy weight upon the neck of anyone who is currently rejecting Christ. May it crush them. May it bring them to the end of themselves that they would openly and willingly confess with their mouth their own sin and the Lord Jesus Christ who came to redeem them. That they may respond in faith to You, Lord Jesus. And that in believing You would save them. We praise You for Your wonderful work. So rich, so free, so full, and yet so undeserved. And we just say with the hymn writer, how can it be? How can it be? Was ever grace so full, so free? Father, for those who need Christ, work in them. 
we pray. For those who are in Christ, may we leave rejoicing like someone looking back at an accident they just avoided it. Someone looking back at disaster behind them. May we leave filled with awe-filled praise. That you did not come to bring final judgment when you did. Thank God for that. But you did come and you brought us salvation. May we rejoice evermore in that. May we remind and encourage one another in the coming week of these things. That we might have full joy, assurance, and peace in Christ. We pray all of this for your glory. Amen.